The impact of the coronavirus pandemic has been worse in some communities than in others, drawing into specific relief decades worth of academic data about health disparities. Today's guest warns us that the impact in Native American communities has been particularly severe. He's Dr. Donald Warren this week on Story in the Public Square. Welcome to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Ludis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. Joining me every week as he does is my great friend, G. Wayne Miller from the Providence Journal. Each week, we talk about big issues with great guests, storytellers, novelists, scholars, and more to make sense of the big issues facing the United States today. This week, we're joined by Dr. Donald Warren, an expert on indigenous health disparities from the University of North Dakota School of Medicine and health sciences. Don, thank you so much for being with us. So I understand that you are a member of the Oglala Lakota tribe, uh, but you're a graduate of Stanford University, uh, uh, Harvard University Masters of Public Health. I'm curious about the track that you took to get into uh, into medicine in the first place. I'm originally from South Dakota on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. Uh, when I was in grade school, however, we moved to Arizona. So I spent most of my childhood and early adulthood in Tempe, Arizona, and went to uh, undergraduate school at Arizona State University. But growing up, I would spend my summers back in South Dakota. So growing up, I just assumed all kids went to South Dakota for the summer, but it turns out that's actually not the case. But um, <laughs> that's just the way I grew up. I was very fortunate to have uh, a lot of uncles uh, and other relatives who are traditional healers and medicine men. So growing up, I was able to get very uh, closely connected to uh, cultural history, cultural practices and ceremonies. And that was just the, the way I grew up. And the advantage for me is that I was able to go to uh, school in a suburb of Phoenix. So I actually had a lot of access to educational resources. So that's, uh, I did well in college and, and was able to go to Stanford University School of Medicine for my medical training. But it also makes me think there's probably so many uh, American Indian people who could be physicians or lawyers or, or other types of professions, but just did not have those same opportunities that I had. There's an issue of equity that we want to talk about. Uh, that's, that's one of the things that we really wanted to discuss with you today. But I'm, I'm curious, sort of, when you when you look at sort of the the the, the tradition of, uh, of 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 traditional healing in your family uh, and uh, in native populations, and you compare that to Western medicine, for somebody who's uninitiated at home, how would you contrast the two? That's a great question. And uh, what's fascinating in traditional medicine, at least what I was taught from a Lakota perspective, is that we don't look at just physical health. It's interesting in modern medicine, another word for doctor is physicians. We're saying right up front, we deal in the physical arena. Physician and physical have the same Latin root physic, which means the natural sciences. So in modern medicine, we really are focused on physical science, whereas in traditional Lakota medicine and other forms of traditional medicine, we look at not just the physical arena, but also mental health, emotional health, and spiritual health. 
So when I was a full-time practicing physician, quite often I would be asked, how do you incorporate traditional medicine into your medical practice? And I say, I don't actually incorporate modern medicine into a traditional practice because the traditional practice is much more encompassing. It does include physical health, but we recognize that mental health, emotional health, and spiritual health have a huge impact on well-being. So as Jim said, we want to get into some of the inequities amongst native populations. Before we do, though, maybe you can just give us sort of a brief historical overview of the roots of these inequities. And, and, and they, they clearly go back to the arrival of, of white Europeans in lands that uh, were and, and are Native American. Talk about that. Give us just a sort of an overview. When we think about indigenous populations and just going way back in history, we know that humanity originated in Africa. And over the last one to two million years, there was migration out of Africa into other parts of the world. So the original populations that inhabited other parts of the world outside of Africa are the indigenous populations, including those who are indigenous to what is now the United States. Uh, so we had relatively stable populations for thousands of years until over about the last 500 years or so, we saw a lot of colonization and migration coming from Western Europe to then occupy other parts of the world, including what is now United States, Canada, even Australia, New Zealand, and other Pacific Islands. And it's really fascinating. We now have uh, multiple populations of English-speaking indigenous peoples, whether it's US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and other parts of the world. And what's fascinating, we see the same types of health outcomes and health disparities in those indigenous populations. And we also tend to see, as a result of colonization, we see marginalization, we see discrimination, uh, and we have also seen warfare and intentional uh, attempts at genocide of our populations. So what we see now is really a lot of outcome from intergenerational trauma and uh, historical uh, marginalization and similar health disparities. So a lot of it's poverty and nutritionally related disparities, so higher rates of things like diabetes, which puts people at greater risk for bad outcomes from COVID-19, but also higher rates of heart disease, cancer, and uh, lower uh, social achievement, like educational attainment and income. And much of that has to do with the outcomes, the long-term outcomes of colonization. What is, what is being done in the United States to address these disparities? And my guess is it, it varies by region and, and perhaps even by tribe. But again, give us an overview of, of what is being done, A, and B, what is needed, because clearly a whole lot more is needed. Fascinating, if we look at various populations in the United States, so just really narrowing in on the US, the only population that is born with a legal right to health services is the American Indian population. And that's based on treaties in which we signed treaties, which are basically contracts between the tribal nations and the federal government. And there's many hundreds of treaties. And typical language for many of the treaties said that the US would provide promise of all proper care and protection. Promise of all proper care and protection. And that was in exchange for uh, land and natural resources. So because of those treaties, that's why we have uh, a legal right to various services, including housing, education, and healthcare. So that's why there's a Bureau of Indian Affairs, that's why there's a Bureau of Indian Education, and that's why there's an Indian Health because the federal government has a legal 
and treaty responsibility to provide those services to Indigenous Americans. And unfortunately, they've just never adequately invested the resources to provide equity. So even though we have a legal right to health services, our funding for healthcare is about one third of what a Medicare recipient would receive. And again, we have just as much, if not more, legal right to health services, but Congress has never fully funded Indian health service. This is a multi-generational challenge. And I would put forth that bad policy is leading to excess disparities and excess death in the American Indian population. And if we need to do something, Congress needs to live up to its treaty responsibilities. And it's, it's always fascinating to me when the US is uh, so quick to judge other nations for civil rights violations or addressing social justice in other parts of the world. What about social justice for indigenous Americans? We, we allow this type of disparity to occur and it's 100% the fault of Congress for not fully funding Indian Health Service. Do you have any hope that given Congress now and given Washington in general, that there will be an effort to, to right this wrong? I mean, there are native members of Congress, not a lot, obviously, but that you do have a voice. In con but again, what do you think the prospects are given our political situation now in, and we're talking uh, when we tape June of 2020? Well, a lot of it really does on who is leading the administration, just quite frankly. And we have uh, Indian friendly leaders and those who are not. Uh, those who are actually even adversarial, like I would say the current administration has been adversarial in many ways. And that's just the truth. That's not a political statement. It's just a, a true observation of, of our circumstances. And you talk about members of Congress, um, out of the 100 senators, we have zero American Indians, actually. So when we look at uh, the Senate, there are no American Indians. And we have a couple of Congress uh, persons, um, but again, not nearly the type of representation that we need. So we need advocates outside of the American Indian population to recognize that this is a challenge and to fix the funding disparities. You know, if we have a legal right to health services, just like recipients, Medicaid recipients, uh, federal employees have a legal right to health services, our funding for healthcare should be at least at that level, and it's not. And uh, we're not getting equal protection under law when we think about the legal right to health services. And this has just been an ongoing multi-decades challenge. And I think one of our, our big challenges is the fact that we are dying from anonymity. You know, pe people don't really recognize these issues uh, in the United States. And we need advocates from outside of Indian country to recognize that this really is a travesty. Uh, average age of death in the Dakotas is uh, around 50 years old for American Indians. It's closer to 80 for the white population. It doesn't have to be that way, but we allow it to occur year after year by under-resourcing our health system. It's, 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 so, so, Don, we want to um, talk to you in a bit about the specific uh, impact that COVID-19 has had on uh, Native populations. But before we do that, I wonder if you could put some, add some additional depth uh, to what you've said. You've you've mentioned things like uh, diabetes um, and the health issues associated with that. But can you put it into specific relief for us? What are the what are the big public health issues facing uh, 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 native populations uh, in the United States today? Well, there's a number of things. One, if we look at risk factors, I think one of our big challenges is we have a lot of unresolved trauma. We, of course, have trauma 
uh, loss of land and resources, a lot of poverty, marginalization, outright discrimination and racism still, unfortunately. Um, so we have a lot of unresolved trauma that leads to uh, health behaviors that are leading to more disparity. So uh, that's one of the big challenges is we have uh, emotional, spiritual, mental trauma that's not been resolved. In addition, you add poverty and marginalization on top of that, we're at tremendous risk for all kinds of poor health and social outcomes. So we, especially here in the Northern Plains, we have higher rates of unemployment, higher, much higher rates of diseases that are linked to poverty and poor nutrition like diabetes and others. So it's hard to put one uh, issue at the forefront as being the primary issue. I think there's historical issues, there's modern day policy issues, and we certainly have a lot of health disparities. And all of these things, unfortunately, provide a negative synergy and they build upon each other and result in the terrible, really third world health conditions that we have for indigenous people right here in the United States. So Don, um, we wanna talk about the impact of COVID-19 on indigenous populations in the US. And again, uh, if, if you can give us an overview and then I wanna get more specifically or want you to get more specifically into Navajo Nation. So what is the overview? How, how are communities faring in the pandemic? Well, one of the issues to our previous discussion is lack of resources leads to lack of adequate public health infrastructure. And when we think about public health infrastructure, we need to have a good workforce. Uh, without resources, it's hard to hire and, and pay a good public health workforce. We need good information and data systems. And with, again, lack of adequate resources, uh, electronic health records and related systems are very expensive. We don't have access to the most recent data systems in most tribal communities. And then you need good uh, physical infrastructure. You need buildings and equipment. And because of generations of lack of adequate investment, most tribes have lack of adequate public health infrastructure. So without that basic infrastructure, it's hard to have good laboratory capability. It's hard to do good uh, epidemic outbreak uh, investigation or even surveillance. So when we think about this, you know, there's the, the three T's of the response, testing, contact tracing, and treatment. And because of lack of adequate public health infrastructure, most of our tribes are not doing adequate testing. It's improved a lot in recent weeks, but we've, we've lost a lot of time in terms of being fully prepared to do the testing that we need. Then contact tracing, where we have to contact people who were in contact with those who test positive. We don't have a, a public health workforce just sitting around waiting for something to do. So it's, it's, we have to hire new people and, and have partnerships to do adequate tracing. And then finally, treatment. We don't have hospitals on most reservations. Indian Health Service, again, is terribly underfunded. And even those communities that have hospitals, they typically do not have intensive care units and ventilators. So across the whole spectrum of testing, tracing, and treatment, we just don't have the resources to adequately meet the uh, demands of COVID-19. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard four times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at J.M. Lutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, 
who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 17 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is Dr. Donald Warren, the Associate Dean at the University of North Dakota School of Medicine and Health Sciences and an expert on health disparities affecting Indigenous people. You can find Donald on Twitter, too, at Donald Warren, MD. I'm going to spell that. It's D-O-N-A-L-D-W-A-R-N-E-M-D. You know, I, I wonder, you know, we're talking about sort of uh, native populations in the in the aggregate uh, sort of across the country. Are there variations by tribal communities? Yeah, we see a lot of diversity within American Indian Alaska Native populations. So there are uh, tribes that are doing better than others in terms of response to COVID-19 or even just building infrastructure. So I think it's important to acknowledge that we have a lot of diversity. There's over 570 federally recognized tribes. So we can't look at it as a kind of a one size fits all. And just like we have a lot of diversity across the 50 states, we have just as much, if not more diversity across the 570 tribes. So yeah, some tribes are doing better than others, but generally speaking, at least where I live and work, we're having a lot of struggles with inadequate public health infrastructure and therefore inadequate response to some of the challenges put forth by the pandemic. So this is not, this. I mean, so if we snapped our fingers today and said, hey, COVID-19 is, is killing a lot of people needlessly in, in native communities, uh, let's do something about it. The, 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 the challenges that you're describing seem far more systematic than the response to just simply COVID-19. Am I overstating that? No, that's exactly right. When we think about what's happening now, COVID-19 is shining a bright light on this disparity. So what I'm hoping, you know, if there is a silver lining, perhaps we can recognize that inadequate public health infrastructure will kill people. And we have, we have great examples of that occurring right now. And it's highly unfortunate that it takes something like a worldwide pandemic for us to start paying attention to these issues. But these have been longstanding issues and these are systemic issues. And there's a role for Congress to play. There's a role for the administration to play. There's a role for states to play. And there's a role for the private sector health system to play. And I think what we need to recognize is that for us as American Indians, we don't want to get back to normal. I mean, normal was not good enough for us. We, we need to get back to better and recognize that the policy issues that are leading to health disparities are fixable if we as a nation decide to make it a priority. So I've been reading uh, recently a fair amount about Navajo Nation. I Obviously, I knew it existed and I knew a, a little bit about it, but until the pandemic, I had not read much in depth. Conditions there are, are terrible in terms of COVID-19. Uh, it has it, it has a rate of, of infection higher than New York City. It really is one of the epicenters. And as I read deeper, I, I read about the conditions that many people there live with, some people without running water. And, and I could go through a list. And again, this just seems <clears throat> disgraceful in the United States um, or anywhere for that matter. Talk about Navajo Nation. What is going on there now? Put forth, I'm not Navajo myself and uh, don't uh, speak for the tribe, but I do have the observations that I've seen and I've, I've worked in Arizona for a long time in the past as well. So what I would say with Navajo Nation, they were at high risk for bad outcomes, again, because of lack of adequate public health infrastructure. And again, just not enough resources to build the type of public health system that we would expect if we lived in New York City or Atlanta or Boston or Los Angeles. You know, We don't have that type of public health infrastructure 
in our tribal communities. So uh, a tribe like Navajo Nation was at high risk because of those factors. In addition, in many ways, they were just terribly unfortunate. As I understand it, there was a large gathering of people at one event in which COVID-19 spread to multiple people, then they went back to their home communities and then spread it in their home communities. So the other question is that for Navajo Nation and many of the tribes here in the Great Plains and across the country, in addition to inadequate public health, we have inadequate housing. So we have overcrowded housing, in many cases, multiple generations living together in one small home. So in reality, how do you do a quarantine in those settings? You know, you don't have that, that ability, or even when someone tests positive, how do you isolate that patient who tests positive? So I think if we combine poverty, inadequate public health infrastructure, overcrowded housing, and quite honestly, just bad luck of having one of the first uh, mass spreading of the disease. Um, that's why we've seen such terrible outcomes at Navajo, but they are not in isolation. We have tribes across the country that are starting to see exponential growth of COVID-19. So in many ways, it's kind of the canary in the coal mine, the, kind of the first one to, to have this terrible outbreak, but other tribes are seeing similar outbreaks and they're at tremendous risk for bad outcomes. You know, we mentioned that you have a, a master's in public health from, from Harvard. Um, the public health community, uh, there was a headline in a newspaper in the last week, you know, this was COVID-19 was the disease that they've been preparing for forever. Uh, and they were still caught largely flat-footed uh, in the response. Uh, you know, you've studied this for, for a good portion of your career. The overall response to the pandemic, how would you characterize it? Inadequate. Uh, this has not been uh, a good response. Of course, I have my medical degree. I graduated 25 years ago this month, actually, from medical school, and, and I've had my MPH for nearly 20 years, and I've worked in this space a long time. And this is, these are things that we were teaching our students when I teach things like leading and managing public health systems that we are still at risk for a pandemic. We hadn't had a terrible pandemic uh, for 100 years since the 1918 influenza pandemic, but we were at risk. And I think in many ways, we probably had this false sense of security in public health and other sectors. And I know with this current administration, they dismantled the pandemic office that was working within the administration. Um, that's a huge mistake. So, so it's a, an inadequate response and not having an adequate public health response or infrastructure, generally speaking, will cause excess death and excess suffering. And we're watching it right now. So, you know, once a couple of years go by and we, we actually study this when we're not in real time dealing with the crisis, we basically do the post-mortem on COVID-19. I think we're gonna identify a number of huge mistakes that were made at the governmental level. You, you cannot have the private sector respond to a pandemic. This is, has to be done by governments. And our government, unfortunately, was inadequate in its response. Will, will we... Will we get past this uh, absent, uh, uh, I guess, one of two things? Uh, do we need to either have a lot more infection to grow herd, herd immunity or a vaccine? Is there any other way around this? Well, actually, we ideally we'll have both herd immunity. Then there's enough people who are immune that we're not going to see wide outbreaks of the disease. Um, and yes, we will get past this. Uh, it's going to take some time. I think the idea that we'll have a vaccine ready and distributed by the end of 2020 is not going to happen. Just even if we develop this technology, it takes time to test it appropriately in the public. You don't want to just put a vaccine out there that 
potentially could cause more harm than than good. So, um, so it's going to take time, whether we like it or not. And uh, I think just like we've let our guard down just overall with pandemics, we're starting to see that now in various states where they've kind of let their guard down. It's like the, the news cycle has moved on to another topic, so people are not taking the measures needed to prevent the spread. So we're seeing more spikes. But perhaps our new normal in the future will include maybe we need a, an annual COVID uh, vaccine, like we have an annual flu vaccine. That's a possibility with the, the new normal moving forward. Um, but we do need a vaccine. We do need herd immunity. And we will get beyond this. It's just going to take probably another year at a minimum. So the conditions you described uh, in Navajo Nation and other tribes and reservations of poverty, of inadequate health care, inadequate funding, those conditions are also experienced in other communities of color in, in the African-American community. And I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on, on how the Black Lives Matter movement, which of course uh, is is very strong now in the wake of, of the death of George Floyd, how does that intersect or interact or dovetail with with native uh, movements and, and, and desire for better? Again, I think what the, the pandemic has done, public health inequities and populations that are impoverished uh, tend to not have adequate public health infrastructure. That's what it comes down to. Can we actually respond to a population health threat? And when we have multiple populations within the United States that have inequities in terms of economics, education, and services, we're going to see inequities in outcomes. So I, I see this as a showing us that allowing these types of inequities to occur in this country we don't have to allow this to occur. We choose to allow it to continue. If we chose to make the right investments to bring everyone's uh, public health systems and infrastructure across populations to an equitable level, we wouldn't have these types of disparities. But as a nation, we've made the decision collectively to not equitably invest in public health. It's uh, we've got about just a minute left here. Um, I'm, uh, you're you are uh, associate dean at the University of North Dakota School of Medicine and Health Sciences. Uh, when you step in front of the classroom, assuming you've got students back on campus uh, in the fall, but when you step in front of students in the fall, uh, what's your message going to be to them about the study of medicine, the study of public health? Well, we need to realize for those of us who are very fortunate enough to go through higher education degrees and, and the training that we can't have it be just about ourselves. It's not just about my personal career development and my personal income opportunities. This needs to be about us as a people. This needs to be about the communities. It needs to be about the population. And what an honor it is to do this work and to uh, achieve higher levels of education, but it's not just for me as an individual, not just for you as an individual. We need to have more collective belief in each other and recognize that we're in this together. And the more that we can do to improve the lives of all Americans, the better off we will all be. And I'm hoping that uh, in future generations, uh, I'm very encouraged by the current generation of medical students and public health students. I think they're more inclusive, more accepting, and more altruistic. So I'm hoping the future is better. Well, Dr. Warren, it's an honor to have you on our show. Thank you so much for being with us. That's all the time we have this week. But if you want to know more about storing the public square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit PellCenter.org, where you can always catch up on previous episodes. 
For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square.